I'm always curious to know exactly what prompts people to do the good work of philanthropy. For Robert Eggert, the founder of the DC Central Kitchen in our nation's capital, it was the classic film Casablanca. It had to be you. An organization dedicated to feeding the homeless and providing job training for the formerly incarcerated was ironically prompted by the wealth and opulence portrayed in the nightclub, Rick's Cafe American. The setup is you've got men and women who clearly left their world behind. It's in, it's in ruin, and they're on the road. They're refugees. But as they, as they kind of flood into Rick's in the first scene, they're laughing and they've got their kind of finest on, and clearly they're, they're pretending that it's the world as it was. It's World War II and thousands are fleeing Europe for the safety of America. Ostensibly as a population of homeless people, they find themselves in Rick's Cafe as a place of refuge, a place of freedom. So there's the momentary freedom of, you know, Rick's dancing, gambling, you know, the bar with Sasha, Carl the waiter, all that. But right below the surface, once they got in, every conversation in, in a variety of languages clearly was about how do I get out of Casablanca to the deeper metaphorical freedom of America. Waiting, waiting, waiting. I'll never get out of here. I'm dying, Casablanca. But can't you make it just a little more, please? Sorry, madame, but diamonds are a drug on the market. Everybody sells diamonds. So Edgar took the idea of a nightclub and carried it forward to a broader metaphor as a place where people could escape the tragic realities of their circumstances. So literally a nightclub could be a gateway for a deeper freedom. And I had seen music take people there. So for me, a nightclub wasn't about booking bands or selling liquor. It was about the shows. Using music theater art, dance, satire, to take people to a spot that we needed to go but were afraid to venture. Somebody who could make me be true. And in the creation of the DC Central Kitchen, Edgar made the idea of a nightclub into a different kind of refuge, a place where the truly homeless can receive food and shelter as well as practical job training to turn their lives around. Working with other restaurants and catering businesses in the DC area, the kitchen takes in more than 3,000 pounds of surplus food each day. They make more than 4,500 meals that are distributed to over 100 shelters, transitional housing facilities, and rehabilitation centers throughout the Washington, D.C. area. And Edgar travels the country giving talks on the value of philanthropic giving as an engine for social change. I found it to be an amazing journey. Quite frankly, I've, I've plowed all the same energy I would have in a nightclub. In fact, I approach the kitchen very much like I would a nightclub. It's a show. I'm, I, I try and set a stage every day that takes people to a place that they're hesitant to go, whether it's a conversation about, you know, the values of our society, the role of the homeless, you know, can nonprofits make money? There's a variety of different experiments, but I just try and create a very low barrier that, that gets people to really open up very quickly to new ideas. In the spirit of charitable giving, Robert Egger is leading the charge in America to show that philanthropy and looking out for the best interests of others can become business as usual. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. They wouldn't do 
What were some of the barriers that you faced? I mean, after you got started, you know, once you got the, the funding that you needed, what were some of the challenges that stood in your way in terms of making this operation a success? Well, I mean, um, two things. A, it, it wasn't really easy raising money because no one had ever done it before. And so you had this double whammy of this urban myth that it was illegal for the health, the health department wouldn't let you donate food. And that was a pretty pervasive urban myth, you still hear it. So the idea of like, you know, what you're gonna take leftover food, um, and then you're gonna use it to train the homeless. So, and most people frankly felt that the homeless weren't capable, you know, which was, I was shocked by the resistance I met. The food thing I could get, I understood that people might be, have the health code thing, but I was shocked by the, the hesitancy people, um, really put up towards the idea, just even the idea of training the homeless. And I think it, quite frankly, and we laugh about it sometimes, but it was this idea of homeless people with knives, I think really freaked people out. So, but I, the interesting part is, you know who was the most welcoming to the idea was restaurant folks. You know, restaurants have historically, we, you know, it's the land of misfit toys. I mean, kitchen, I mean, restaurants love misfits. It's, it's, it's the industry that embraces that kind of stuff. In fact, quite frankly, the restaurant hospitality is one of the first industries to really break through the kind of diversity barriers. So, I mean, the, history, the, the industry's always been pretty innovative that way. Um, but, you know, after it started, quite frankly, we opened up on George Bush Sr.'s inauguration. And, you know, the idea was, if I can get the president to donate food, he's been talking about points of light, this would be a great opportunity, he'll look good, we'll launch, and if it works well, that opens the doorway, not just for us in Washington, but frankly, any other city. Because then again, what I've effectively done in my opening is I've robbed anybody of the ability to say it's illegal because the president of the United States just did it. So it's very interesting, if I may, because that's really, that that tactic has become our prevailing kind of core ethic is that I don't want to do anything just for us as the kitchen. I've always tried to do something. What? How can I use my location in the nation's capital to elevate the idea so that all nonprofits, and frankly our larger country, benefits? It's, I just never want to get lost in that, how can I make my program bigger? Egger's work at the D.C. Kitchen speaks to the broader question of exactly what is philanthropy and how it can be a practical way to achieve social change, not only in Washington's poorest neighborhoods, but across the country. Eggers said we need to change the way we even talk about philanthropy. Well, we want to talk about the nonprofit sector and how it's kind of evolved. I mean, quite frankly, it's a feminized sector. You know, it, it, there was a founding mother's generation in the 1970s. My mother's generation, who came out of the home, having gone to college in the 50s, but they pretty much sat on the sidelines. They sat as, as America left the, the, the agriculture and we sold the farmland to suburbs, my mother and a million of her cohort watched um, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, Vietnam, the environmental movement from the sidelines. And when it was their turn to leave the home, proud mothers and proud spouses they were, nonetheless it was their time to express themselves professionally. They went into the business world and there were no jobs. I mean, there was a sense of, well, that's nice, but you've been a homemaker, you haven't done anything. My mother, I always say this, my father's a Marine and gone three times to Vietnam. My old man really never sold a house. You know, my mother did all the business. She ran a small company, but there was nothing for her in the business world. And what you had, we went from like 75,000 nonprofits in about 1968 to a million in 15 years. And it dawned on me recently, it's my mother's generation who, because there were no vehicles for them to express themselves professionally, they started millions of nonprofits in America. And to me, that's just fascinating. And, but 
what it was was a sector that was marginalized from day one. It was said, in fact, look, ladies, if you want to feed poor people leftover food from restaurants, you want to plant flowers, elevate the arts, that's fine, we'll humor you. But we're never going to give you enough money to be actually dangerous and threaten the status quo. You know, we're, we're only going to give you enough money to do charity, not real change. Has it changed? No, and that's the thing. This one I'm kind of say is I went through a phase when I wrote, I wrote this book, Begging for Change, and I was kind of in my blame the, the, the player, not the game mode. And I've come to be, I, I, my mother passed last year, and it was really at her funeral that, and I thought about my mother's life that it dawned on me. I had one of those aha moments where I realized, oh my goodness, that's why we do it. And we've made that model as beautiful as it was. We've made it bigger, bigger, bigger without examining the limits you know, of, of the model, the equation. It's almost like we have you know, um, M equals EC squared. You know, wrong formula, right ingredients, wrong formula. And so I'm just interested in, in reconstructing the nonprofit sector so that we are viewed internally. We recognize that we are a powerful part of America and we deserve respect and responsibilities commensurate with our role. But at the same time, I want the larger America to realize this is an amazing part of who we are as a people. We need to celebrate it and we need to recognize that there's a potential economic liberation in, in kind of moving beyond this kind of old school um, dot com dot org kind of um, demarcation. So what do you say to someone, a young person in particular, who is interested in a career in philanthropy and is curious to know how they're going to go about doing that as an adult? I got to tell you, there's a, a younger generation, and, and I'm loath to generalize, but what I'm, what I'm so impressed with, and I, I speak at universities all the time, is this, this keen desire I see for young gener- a younger generation to merge their spirituality, their lifestyle, and their income. This sense of, look, I need to make a living. I can't work for nothing. But I'd love to find a job in which I not only don't do harm, but I actually do good. It's this idea of a new era of social enterprise, of microcredit, of if nonprofits have access to capital and actually start to build businesses. You know, what would it be like in a community to move beyond the notion that businesses drive the economy while charities clean up behind? And say, in effect, no, charities are major businesses also. What would happen if a charity became a major developer? Instead of waiting for a, for example, instead of the government trying to incentivize a developer to build a couple of units of of workforce housing, what happens if you gave a nonprofit access to capital and they actually could, if we sold the shelters and built apartment buildings? You know, and this is this this leap, and we're going to need this younger generation's new ideas. They're coming out of every school in America loaded for bear, you know, loving their hearts and a full head full of great knowledge. So I think this is an amazing time for our country to recognize between 80 million baby boomers who will be looking for, if I may be so bold, a form of redemption by volunteering. And they'll have the deepest well of life experience in the history of the planet. And at the same time, we get another 80 million young people coming out of school with this new sense of the life they want to lead. There's gold. There is, there, and this is, this is the great opportunity for America. I mean, we're a country that has historically always treasured our entrepreneurs. You know, every generation's birthright in America is to respectfully disagree with the previous generation's assumptions. And that's what we're doing. So for a younger person now, and I, I, I know whether it's in the city, the state, in this country, there's tens of thousands, if not millions of young people who are looking for this opportunity. It's like, go for it. You know, be respectful. Don't be rude, but be impatient. You know, the, the charity model as it exists, it doesn't work. It's, it's beautiful. Flowers are blooming. But if you want a garden, we're going to have to approach it differently. And we need your new ideas, your enthusiasm, your spirit coming in as fast as you can. You know, at the D.C. Central Kitchen, we have multiple businesses. And many of them are contract food providers, which allow us to spend literally a million dollars buying local produce. 
So here's a program that again supports local farmers, engages volunteers, keeps felons out of prison, feeds people healthy food so they can get back on the road and become healthy taxpayers. I mean, and, and again, so I, I literally, as you can imagine, bristle at the notion of being confined to the idea that I'm a charity. No, man, I'm, I'm an ass-kicking monster of love. I am out there to change the world and I do it every single day of the week. At the DC Central Kitchen, Robert Eggert is using food to build strong communities, combating hunger while creating opportunities. You can learn more online at dccentralkitchen.org. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsor, Patagonia. Check out their latest new media projects and conservation initiatives at their blog, thecleanestline.com. Thanks for listening, but we hope you'll write. Send a message with your questions, comments, or criticisms by email to info at joytripproject.com or find us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.